Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Uh, In the year 2007, a guy named Ryan McFarlane wanted to share his passion for riding bikes with his two-year-old son named Bodie. Uh, And so uh, Ryan did what any passionate bike rider and dad would do. He went and bought a whole collection of learn-to-ride vehicles from the local toy store. Uh, Now, learn-to-ride vehicles uh, are those big plastic uh, vehicles that are abandoned all over the neighborhood and in the cul-de-sac. Uh, those are learn-to-ride vehicles. Um, they, they're meant to help kids develop skills that are needed to ride and to pilot a vehicle. Uh, however, Ryan, this dad, was frustrated uh, because he found that, at least for his two-year-old son, Bodie, that these machines were either too heavy, too complicated, Uh, too clunky, but maybe most of all didn't teach the essential skill of balance uh, necessary for riding a bike. Uh, So Ryan set out to solve this problem, uh, and he has actually transformed the way that kids learn to ride bikes now. Uh, Ryan McFarland went to his garage and he began to uh, cut and weld and adjust and do all of these things until he found the perfect solution, a lightweight bike, perfectly sized for toddlers that doesn't have training wheels or pedals at all. Now, um, what happens is these kids kind of sit on the seat and the seat is, is just high enough and just low enough for them to be able to have their feet touch the ground and yet their bottoms still be able to sit on the seat. And so they can propel themselves um, by with using their feet, but then also they can coast on the bike simply by lifting their feet off the ground. And so this new kind of bike provided all kinds of security uh, because the kids could catch themselves anytime that they felt like they were going to fall, and yet all sorts of freedom as well because now the kids could go anywhere on this new kind of bike. But more importantly and most importantly, it taught the essential skill of balance. And so these pedalless bikes um, have transformed the way that young kids learn to ride bikes and have turned into a global phenomenon. Some of you already know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Strider bike. Uh, in fact, both of our girls learned to ride their bike by first riding Strider bikes. Uh, and they made the seamless transition to a pedal bike in a single afternoon, having never used training wheels. I'm telling you, these things are miraculous. They're phenomenal. Uh, in fact, I'll never forget, I will never forget when um, one Christmas time we were going to the Garden of Spring Creeks to go uh, see the lights, and Jaden was just a toddler, and so we were going to, Santa was there, so we were doing the whole Santa thing. And so it finally came time for us to be at the front of the line. Uh, Jaden goes up to Santa, and Santa says the classic question, what do you want for Christmas? And Jaden says, I want a pedal, or I want a bike with pedals. And it threw Santa off so bad. 
he just, Santa had no clue what to do with this little girl. He looked at us, the parents, like, what are you doing to this child that you've taken the pedals off of her bike, you know? Oh, it was so great. It was so great. And in fact, that's what we did. That Christmas, she got uh, a pink cruiser bike with pedals and learned to ride it almost instantly. It was phenomenal. Here's the point, uh, or here's why I'm telling this silly story. When we're trying to solve a problem, or when we're trying to improve a design, we as humans tend to think only in terms of additive changes. In other words, when we go to solve a problem, we always try, our first instinct is to add something rather than take something away. In fact, an article published last month in Nature Science Journal reported that when trying to improve something, human tendency is always to add rather than subtract. And so what we maybe could know experientially, science has proved empirically. Here's what the, uh, here's what the, the Science Journal said. Quote, When we try to solve a problem or improve a design, we typically think something needs to be added to the existing model. It is much harder for us to think about subtracting something to solve a problem. And this human psychology snafu can be found everywhere, like extra meetings to figure out why work schedules are so cramped. (laughs) Right? Like all of us know that one, right? Or the red tape of bureaucracy or, learn, or leaning on technology only to solve the climate crisis. Okay, end quote. Now, it goes on, the article goes on to describe then how this study was conducted. It says this, quote, The researchers asked 1,153 participants to solve various problems. These included solving a geometric puzzle, stabilizing a Lego structure, and improving a miniature golf course. Time and again, participants chose additive changes, adding to the existing structure instead of removing something, even when removing something was a more efficient and effective solution. End quote. Okay. With that in mind, let's turn to John chapter 15. Uh, This is where we were last week. I want to read what we looked at last week and then go on to the rest of the passage. So I want to read John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. Uh, You can follow along with me on your devices. I think it'll also be up on the screen. But it says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. For every branch that bears no fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. And you've already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I, as I abide in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. For I am the vine and you, or as we know from last week, you all are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, much fruit because apart from me you all can do nothing. For whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers, and such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you all will abide in me, and my words will abide in you all, ask for whatever you all wish, and it will be done for you all. My Father is glorified by this, that you all bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved (laughs) y'all. Abide in my love. 
For if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And I have said these things so that my joy uh, may be in you and that your joy may be complete. For this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. For you are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, and I have made known to you everything that I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appoint you to go and to bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that the Father will ask So the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you may love one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now last week we talked about how this is not just a passage that is about kind of my personal connection with God. It is that. And it should lead us into good, reflective questions about how we can engage more deeply with God, how we can be personally connected with God. But there is this communal element to it all, as evidenced in the Greek plural use of the word you, right? That it's about you all. I am the vine, you all are the branches. Abide in me and I will abide in you all, right? So there's this communal sense to it. And so I encouraged you simply last week to... uh, be connected to others, to inconvenience ourselves in order to uh, be in relationship with people, particularly in this time. It's so, so important. Uh, Today, though, I want to turn to this other part of the passage that we don't really like very much, this idea of pruning. I mean, isn't it true, especially based on the study that I referenced at the beginning of of the sermon this morning, that we tend to think that adding something is inherently good, while taking something away is inherently bad. Uh, We believe that to add is to improve, and to subtract is to compromise. So when it comes to a passage that talks about us being pruned, we tend, our initial reaction is to think that probably is a bad thing. Uh, That this pruning is, is at least not fun, it's not good, it's maybe a negative thing, and yet, right? This, the way that pruning is positioned in this passage is it's a good thing that we are pruned so that we might bear more fruit. Now, I'm not a gardener, and I don't even pretend to be one. I, I have the most difficult time keeping grass green, right? Like, I am the very opposite of a green thumb that you can get. But one thing that I have learned by talking to gardening friends is that if a rose bush needs to be pruned. In fact, we have rose bushes in our courtyard, and, and we have a group of volunteers uh, that do a great job of keeping our rose bushes looking nice and looking pruned. But it needs to be pruned because left unchecked, the plant would actually grow in on itself and then block its own light. Did you know this? It would grow in on itself and then block its own light. An unpruned rosebush would get into such a tangled mess in on itself that it would rob the healthy parts of the light that they need in order to flourish, and the result would be a whole bunch of roses 
and buds that are underdeveloped and unhealthy, rather than fewer buds that are thriving and beautiful. Now, the same is also true of the grapevine, which also must be pruned. A grapevine left unchecked would become so overgrown that it robs its healthy parts of, of the light and nutrients that it needs in order to flourish. And so without pruning, there would be a whole bunch of grapes, but the grapes would be bitter. With pruning, that grapevine can produce a good number of grapes, but fewer, right, with the pruning, but the grapes are higher quality and taste great. I would invite you to consider for a moment your own life with that metaphor. Because I think this is a really, really helpful way of thinking about our lives. Particularly as we kind of find our way or meander our way out of this pandemic. Do you remember how busy our lives were prior to March 13th, 2020? (laughs) I mean, it was just all the time, go, go, go. And do you remember how we used to wear busyness like a trophy or a badge of importance? Hey man, how are you doing? Oh, I'm busy. And I'm so busy because I'm important. (laughs) Right? And then the whole world changed. And our lives were essentially shut down for at least a little while, right? Kind of took a while to kind of get up to speed a little bit. And then we're still not out of this thing. And yet, so many of us have kind of talked about a return to, what do we call it? Normal. I invite us into this metaphor of pruning just to consider our own lives and how we might return. It reminds me of when the disciples on the road to Jerusalem were kind of leaving Jerusalem, right? They were leaving Jerusalem, uh, having, uh, being uncertain about all that's going on with Jesus, but then they find themselves, actually Jesus is the mystery traveler that's with them, and they meet him in the town of Emmaus, they have a meal, and it says that Jesus revealed himself to them through the breaking of bread, and they have this huge aha moment. They go back to Jerusalem, but they're not returning to Jerusalem in the same way. They're not returning to Jerusalem as the same people. They're going back, but they're, not, but they're going back to something brand new, even though they're returning to the same location. I think that also could be a kind of sense of metaphor, that as we think about going back to normal, to use, allow God to, to use this metaphor to speak to us about is there something in our lives that before was taking a lot of time and energy but blocking us from doing the things that are life-giving and going to produce fruit in our lives? That maybe as we think about kind of going back, maybe we don't just stack everything right back on there, but we go through a pruning process, a discerning process, so that we can kind of not get grown in on ourselves so that our the, the light is being blocked. In other words, are there some things in our lives blocking the light of the more healthy things that are not allowing those good things to flourish in our lives? I think that's an important kind of piece of discernment as we think about coming out of the pandemic. 
in this passage, the stated goal of pruning is that we would, in fact, bear more fruit, that we would be more fruitful. Um, and, but this begs a question, right? If the, if the goal of pruning is to have greater fruitfulness, then what is the fruit, uh, right? It's helpful to know what does that fruit look like. And if you're like me, my mind instantly goes to Galatians and the fruit of the Spirit. And, and to yet to that, I want to say yes and amen, right? So if your mind is, is kind of going toward the fruit of the Spirit, good for you. Those are great things that need to be kind of flourished in our lives. But if you're also like me, there's this other kind of thought that sneaks in there when it comes to fruitfulness for God. And when I think about fruitfulness for God, I almost always go to activity for God. Um, Doing stuff for God, right? Doing stuff in the name of God, doing stuff, being busy, but doing kind of God things, right? And I think that is an overflow of fruitfulness for God, but if we focus too much on the ends, we might miss the means, right? We might just think that it's all about just kind of checking a list of doing stuff for God. And so I want to say to you that I don't think I think this passage includes doing stuff for God, but I don't think it's all about that. I don't think it's just activity on God's behalf, although it can include that. Because too many times we think that work or activity is the answer, but I think there's a more foundational, motivating work in our lives. And so if it's not more activity or work for God, then what is it? And John actually tells us what it is. John actually tells us in the second part of the passage. And so I want you to listen to this collection of verses from the passage that we read, but kind of comes after the part of pruning, right? So pruning leads to greater fruitfulness. What is this fruitfulness? Here's what John has to say. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me, and so remain in my love. When you obey my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. And so this is my commandment, that you love one another in the same way that I have loved you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask using my name. This is my command. Love one another. I mean, you kind of get a sense when you put it all together. What is John talking about? Let's follow the logic. First, we are told to remain in God's love. And so the first section is all about remaining in the vine, but then beginning in verse 9, the the language changes and we're told not to remain in the vine, but to remain in my love, right? And so they're kind of two of the same thing. He's first using this agricultural metaphor, be connected to the vine, but how do we do that? Be connected to the love of God. Remain in my love. Then verse 10 says, well, how do we do that, right? Let's follow the logic. Remain in the vine. Remain in my love. How are we to remain in my love? Verse 10 says, when you obey my commands, you remain in my love. He gives us the answer. He lays it out. So what is the command? 
When you obey my commands, you remain in my love. So what is the command? To love one another. This is at the risk of oversimplifying things, right? But when we get right down to it, and we really internalize this message of loving one another well, we recognize that while simple on the surface is actually not quite so easy. (laughs) And so fruitfulness in the kingdom of God is not a work-related fruitfulness, as in doing stuff or activity for God, but fruitfulness in the kingdom of God is a relational fruitfulness. You with me? The way that fruitfulness is defined according to the gospel writer himself is relationally, not vocationally. Now, are they connected? Of course they're connected, right? Of course, if we maintain that relational love, it will spill over into vocational ambassador kind of work for the kingdom of God which will mean we'll be motivated to volunteer here or help out there or give this and like all of these kinds of activities for God, but they must be rooted in something. But too often when we think about fruitfulness for God, we go right to the activity, the work for God, and we lose the relational connectedness. And so it's relational fruitfulness. It's not just about activity or work or productivity. It is defined relationally. And so we are, to, we are pruned so that we can become more relationally fruitful. And the fruit of remaining on the vine and being pruned is, in fact, defined as love. In fact, just two chapters earlier, Jesus says in John chapter 13, beginning with verse 34, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love one another. Just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Whoa. Now, scholars have lots of debates about this. Is the one another people inside the the community of faith Or does it include people outside the community of faith? The answer is both. The answer is both. In fact, I would say that the driving motivation of our approach to this pandemic as a church has been to say, how do we prioritize love for other over and above personal rights and freedoms. Not always the most popular position. Right? But, but when, when we hear it, when we hear John chapter 13, and we hear it with fresh ears, and we, and we listen to it in the context of the world in which we're in, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. That in a culture that tends to really, really prioritize personal freedoms and rights, what would happen if the people of God gave up those rights, which looks a lot like Jesus, in order that we might love one another? I'll bet that'd be a pretty powerful witness. And so love, 
Love is the fruitfulness that our lives are to produce, and it is way easier said than done. Right? It's way easier said than done. And there's, all, there's a million kind of complications and nuances and things and implications and things to explore and, and, and a working out of this salvation in Jesus Christ of what it means to love one another. And so what we are invited into is we are invited into this process of pruning in our lives, allowing the Spirit of God to not always just add things, but sometimes the Spirit of God surveys our life and our heart and says, in this case, it's good to take something away. In this case, I need to root something out, and then after that has been rooted out, then I've got some room to plant something else, to plant something new, right? And so we're invited into this process of pruning for the purpose of abiding in love for God, love for one another, and love for neighbor. And all as wonderful as that sounds, it is actually very difficult to live out. And in fact, I would say that we have the hardest time believing that love has that kind of power in our lives. Um, can I say it this way? We have a hard time believing in the power of love. <laughs> and yet, that is what we are called into. That's what we're invited into. We are invited into an exploration of what it means to fully love God, to fully love one another, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, the call of God's love is so radical that he says we are even to love our enemies, or even to love those who would persecute us. And we can take persecute a whole bunch of ways. Persecute from, for our faith, right? But persecute as in treat us really poorly. We're called even to love those. So given that we have the hardest time living out or believing in the power of love, how are we to do that? Well, Jesus says something really interesting to the disciples. I'm not sure if you caught it, because uh, I, I sure didn't the first few times that I read this, or I read over it and didn't really consider it. But Jesus says something really interesting. Uh, right after talking about pruning, uh, in, the, in verse 2, uh, in order to bring greater, greater fruitfulness in our lives, Jesus says, you have already been pruned by the message I have given to you. Wait, what? Like we're talking about being pruned, but then Jesus says, you've already been pruned from the message that I have given to you. And so pruning seems to be kind of having taken place already, but then there's also this reality of there's more pruning that is yet to be done. There's more pruning to come. Um, did you catch our prayer that talked about the kingdom of God in this way? The kingdom of God that is so it's like already here, it's already present, and is yet to come. And so there seems to be more or greater fullness or expression of the kingdom of God that is yet to take place. The same is true in our lives. There's pruning that has been done, and there's more pruning yet to come. 
In fact, consider where the disciples are coming from. Uh, They have anticipated the coming of the Messiah since they were children. For generations, they have grown up in families, and their parents grew up in families, and their grandparents and great-grandparents have grown up in families that have told stories about the Messiah that is yet to come, the Messiah that is, in fact, coming. And so they have lived with this heightened anticipation since being a child of the Messiah that would come. So you can imagine that once this guy named Jesus of Nazareth is, is assumed or rumored to be the long-awaited Messiah, and then that same Jesus goes to them and invites uh, them to follow him, they go without hesitation, right? I mean, this is generations in the making. So come, follow me, the Messiah, Yes, you bet, sign me up, I'm on board, right? But listen, the disciples do not answer the call of discipleship as blank slates. They have baggage, they have expectations, they've got some ideas, in fact, of what it will mean to follow this new Messiah movement. They've got ideas about power, violence, who's in, who's out, economics. They've got it all. They come to discipleship with Jesus, the Messiah, having ideas of what it will mean to follow Messiah. They don't come as blank slates. Isn't that true? None of us come to Jesus as blank slates. We all have preconceived notions of how the world works, how power dynamics work, how economics should work. We come with some ideas. And then as these disciples begin to spend time with Jesus, listening to his teaching, learning from his miracles, guess what? They were being pruned from the message that they heard. They came with ideas of what it would mean to follow Messiah. The Messiah prunes out some of those ideas in order that they might more faithfully embody and reflect the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. This is why, or this might be why, Jesus uses such dramatic language with them, right? He says to these disciples who have signed up for the Messiah movement, repent, which means wake up, (laughs) You are going in this direction, wake up, turn around, and go in the other direction. That's what repent means. So Jesus says to this group of disciples, repent or wake up. He says to them, be born again. Which is this way of saying, you may have thought that you knew how the world worked or how the world was operated, but listen, I am establishing a kingdom that is upside down. And if you're going to learn to see that and embrace that and recognize that, you're going to have to be born all over again. This may be why Jesus describes the kingdom of God as this narrow way. It's pretty dramatic language, but there was some pruning that needed to be done. Are you with me? And so these are all the ways of Jesus saying that if you are going to follow him and his kingdom, some old ways of thinking are going to have to be pruned away. And Jesus' words then to his disciples is, you are pruned, you are clean because of the message that you, I have done and you have heard my teaching, but there is more pruning yet to be done. There's more to be done. 
Can I say to you, this really serves as our invitation this morning. Um, that our abiding and God's pruning are dynamic realities. They're not static. That, that there is this sense in which, yep, God did that work. He did that. You had that wake-up moment. You repented. And yet now the invitation to follow him is still relevant in our lives and there is still more pruning that is yet to be done. That these are dynamic realities. That the invitation to abide and to remain, these are active things. These are present tense. These aren't like something I decided back then and now I'm, I'm all done with that. This is, yes, it began back then. My journey, this pilgrim's journey of abiding and remaining began back then, but it continues on today. So that when we come across things like pandemics, We've got a whole new pruning process to go through of saying, how do we approach this? What does it mean to be Christian in a world like this? What does it mean to be Christian in a world where there is political division in every direction? What does it mean to be Christian in a world where we're learning some things about people's experience that maybe aren't like ours? What does it mean to be Christian when we hear stories from people of color? All of these things are pruning process. And I get sad. I get frustrated. On my worst days, I get angry at myself and others who aren't open to the pruning. And who just think the whole thing's got it figured out and the answers are easy. God invites us to remain in his love, to abide in his love, and to this process of pruning. Because you were clean from the message that you heard, and yet there's more pruning to be done. And so I think the invitation this morning is to recalibrate priorities so that we abide in God's love, being pruned for greater relational faithfulness in the world so that the world will know us by our love. So that the world will know us by our love for one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, today we are challenged by this message out of John chapter 15. We see the beauty in it and it encourages us and yet it just challenges us as well that it's a high call that the world would know us by our love and it's been a very very difficult few months year and a half couple years as we the church the body of Christ the the community of the faithful have tried to sort out what it means to be Christian in a world that is politically divided, in a world where there's a pandemic, in a world where racial tensions are being, being brought right to the forefront, and then probably a thousand other things where, in the ways that that has affected our family relationships, our church relationships, all of those things, and we are just trying to figure out how do we 
remain in your love. Remain faithful. God, challenge us. Do some pruning today that we might know what it means to be your disciples. And God, ultimately, our goal is that the world would know us by our love for one another, that, we would, that, our, that, that our love for you and our love for one another and our love for our neighbor would be radiant and beautiful. God, help us. We need your grace. We need your spirit to transform us. So be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.